Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm Mila Atmos. How can we have a more representative government that includes Latino voices? That's the main question for our guest today on Future Hindsight, Cristobal Alex. He's the president of Latino Victory Fund, an organization that is dedicated to making sure Latino voices are heard by empowering Latino voters, developing a pipeline of Latino donors, and developing Latino candidates. Cristobal has many years of experience in increasing political participation in communities that have been historically excluded from our democracy. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Your work is to make sure that Latino voices are heard. In order for us to get a picture of how things stand, where and when are Latinos not heard today? Well, and I'll start by saying just demographically, we're an incredibly fast-growing part of the country. We're about 18% of the population, but only about 1% of all elected officials. And when we look at state legislatures around the country, sometimes those numbers are a lot worse. You've heard this before. If you're not at the table, you don't have a seat at the table, you're on the menu. And so often our community is on the menu, as we are right now, being targeted by this administration, by the federal government, by policies. What we want to do is break in, bring our own seat if we have to, and and have a seat at the table. I think in the United States, most communities are siloed. So white people mix with white people, black people with black people and Latinos with Latinos, let's say. And there's very little intermingling. At least this is my personal experience. A part of me feels that if we were a more cohesive culture, if we were all more together, we would have a more inclusive politics. What do you think would help us achieve that culturally? There is a definite sort of segregation that occurs in our country for many reasons. Look at the history of this nation. Not too long ago, we we had slavery. We moved into a dangerous era right after that, Jim Crow. And then around 1964, 1965, we started having some breakthrough civil rights legislation and litigation that led to some of those walls coming down. Now we've got other forms of artificial segregation. Think about where kids go to school. Think about where we live. So some of that is just a result of this country having these relics of the past, right? But there's also the flip side, which is culturally, we want to be around folks that are similar to us. I'm from El Paso, and if I want a great taco, I live in Washington, D.C., so I'll go to my favorite taco joint, which is in a Latino neighborhood. And when I look around the restaurant, these days it's more and more mixed. I hope that's the case in other facets and other forms of life. And I think you make a good point that if we had that sort of touch, we would be able to communicate our issues better. And if we were talking with folks and had that kind of colloquy, we'd be at the table more often. Now, there's one other point to make, which is if you have power, you don't want to give power up. If I say I want to elect a Latino candidate in a district that is 90% Latino and doesn't currently have a Latino candidate, the non-Latino candidate's not going to want to say, oh, you know what? You're right. You should be represented by someone who reflects your values or looks like you, talks like you, comes from the neighborhood. You have to go and take that. But what about other people? When we think about the larger picture of having a more inclusive politics, what is it that, let's say, Latino culture brings to the table and enriches the American culture? Well, for starters, a good portion of this country, as you know, was Mexico before it was the United States. And part of that means that in the Southwest especially, you've got 
language, you've got food, you've got other forms of culture that are, are very integrated or part of life. And you're seeing that more and more around the country as natural-born Latinos are the fastest part of our demographic growth. You also still have significant immigration from countries around the world, and especially Latin and South America, which add a lot of vibrancy to the culture. They're also the economic drivers, right? If you look to see countries that are doing well, it's the ones that have strong immigration systems. Yes, I think we forget that immigration is good for the United <laughs> States. So we lose sight of that, that yes. a lot of immigrants bring, like you said, vibrancy to the economy. There's this whole immigrant culture where people are so thankful they're in this place where yeah. there's a lot of opportunity and well, they work really hard. You nailed it. I mean, just take my own family, for example. Both my parents are immigrants. My mom was a migrant farm worker. She toiled in the fields as the eldest of 10 kids from Mexico, from Zacatecas, and traveled through California, the panhandle of Texas, eventually settling the family in El Paso. And when I was born, she was no longer working in the fields, but she still had three jobs so that my brother Richie and I would have the chances that she never had, the opportunities she never had. And I remember when I was a little kid, she would say, if you worked really hard and you set your heart to it, you could achieve whatever you wanted to in this country. The way we think about the American dream, that's what it is, right? Being able to sit down at the U.S. Senate earlier in the week and testify. Like, these are rooms I never thought I would ever be in, but it's because our parents worked so hard to get us here. That's exactly right. Well, since we're talking about being in the Senate and talking about politics, one of the taglines on your website is, quote, we are winning races in states across the nation at every level of office, unquote. There have been some recent victories for Latinos across the country. Tell us a little bit more about that. What does it portend for American politics going forward? So the tagline there uh, refers to the hard work that we do with our partners and with others to think about leadership development and think about the future and developing pipelines of leaders around the country that are going to, to represent our community, to make our democracy stronger and more inclusive. And so what we do is recruit candidates and then we do everything we can to get them over the finish line. So some recent examples of that. In Texas, we had never elected a Latina to Congress before, if you can believe that. We're about a quarter of the entire Latino population, but have never elected one. So we worked hard to recruit this incredible champion named Veronica Escobar for Bethel O'Rourke's open seat. We recruited her. We supported her. We did everything we could to help her. Now she, along with this other great candidate that we supported, named Sylvia Garcia, will be the first Latinas ever elected to Congress from Texas. And that's a really big deal for us. We've got all of these incredible leaders and the talent is there all over the country. What you're seeing is this urgency right now, too, within our community. We've got a president who started his campaign on the very first day by attacking us, calling us rapists, calling us thieves. He went on to win and has kept us in the crosshairs, whether that's holding our dreamers, the best and brightest young immigrants, hostage for a 2,000-mile monument to xenophobia, a, a wall along the border, abandoning Puerto Rico, pardoning America's most famous racial profiler, Sheriff Joe Arpaio, ripping kids away from their moms at the border with this family separation. And so it's more important than ever that we recruit great leaders to defend our community, to serve as a bulwark against this terrible administration until we can take back our government and then advance the policies that really matter to us. What are the policies that really matter to you? We do a lot of polling and research and talking to folks to see what really is important to them. 
And you'll be surprised to hear that our top issues are top issues for most Americans. You could just as easily call Latino Victory Fund America Victory Fund. We care about health care, a strong economy, good jobs that pay well, education. Latinos care a lot about the environment more than any demographic. Nine out of 10 Latinos want to see some action to curb climate change, which is extremely high. That's because we're, in some ways, the original environmentalists. When you think of Latinos and you turn on the news, it's immediately about immigration, but that's not always the case. Well, it sounds like you've been very successful. What's the secret to your success? Uh, We've got a long ways to go, so I'll start with that. I sometimes think of us as the tip of the political spear for the Latino community in the sense that we are unabashedly pro-Latino, unabashedly progressive. We will put our money where our mouth is. And so in that sense, we've had success because our community trusts us, um, our candidates do. We uh, go above and beyond to help them succeed for the goal of building Latino political power. We're fairly new. We've been around two cycles. 2014, we launched as a test, and that was a rough year for us, but we learned a lot in that process. In 2016, we had a great year. We won about 70% of our races. Down ballot, we had great success, making a lot of important investments that paid off, like the first Latina ever to serve as a Speaker of the House in Colorado, the very first Latina we elected to the Senate in Nebraska, among other really important victories around the country. Now, in 2017, we thought what we needed to do in the aftermath of the presidential election was invest further down ballot, looking at key states, places like Nevada, Florida, Arizona, Georgia, where we have very fast-growing populations, but we're not commensurate with our share in the legislature. And so have invested time and resources into those places to recruit this pipeline, and it's paying off. I think we're going to have a very successful year in 2018 and then get ready for 2020. What was the impetus to start Latino Victory and say we need to have political power and let's organize around that? Uh, For me, I practiced civil rights law. That was a dream of mine as a kid. And I remember having this big case out in Washington state, a class action where this um, little town was 80% or so Latino, a migrant farm worker town. They had a racist police chief, a racist mayor that discriminated against these women and caused them to have their lives upended by getting the feds and others to raid their homes under the guise that they were in the country illegally. It turned out that they were documented, but they still had their homes raided without warrants. And I went through and with this great law firm in Seattle, ended up suing the governor and everybody else in this massive class action. After three years of pretty intense litigation, we were successful. And I remember being able to uh, reward these women after the litigation with compensatory damages. But the best part about it was One of the women, Barbara Bravo, ended up deciding she was empowered and she would run for office. And so we got rid of the police chief, we got rid of this terrible mayor, and she ended up winning the first Latina elected to the city council. And I realized, you know what? I'm working on the wrong side of the equation here, the wrong side of the problem. I'm working on the redress side. But the reason this keeps happening is because we don't have political power on the front end. And so I moved to New York, started working with folks like George Soros and the Ford Foundation and others to really start investing and thinking about political power. But... As part of that process, we noted that there's still something missing here from our ecosystem. So several of us got together, people like Henry Munoz, who's a well-known businessman and lifelong organizer out of San Antonio, Eva Longoria, who is, as you know, a very well-known filmmaker who cares a lot about these issues, and others, and said, we're going to launch this thing and build it so that we can have our own organization that focuses just on this to build Latino political power through elections. And we've got great people around us. 
Tell me a little bit about the nitty gritty. How do you do the work to support Latino candidates? Like, what is it that you do that helps them get on the ballot, for example, or something that maybe people don't understand about elective office? The answer is it really depends on the race and the candidate. It also depends a little bit on where we are in terms of looking at it from our strategy. I'll give you an example. So in 2017, Virginia has off-year elections, right? It's important because it allows us to take a good look at different models and test things and really engage in these smaller number of states to see what works. And after 2016, there was this incredible woman, Elizabeth Guzman, who is an immigrant from Peru, a social worker, very successful, brilliant woman in the northern part of Virginia. Her son came home from school, he's nine years old, and said, Mom, do we need to leave the country now that Trump is president? People are saying these sorts of things in school. And she was shocked by that and said, I've got to do something about it, and decided she wanted to run for office but didn't know how. So we, together with some key partners around the Women's March in D.C., decided that we needed to host a candidate training. And then we broke off a, a big part of that candidate training to, for some more advanced folks that we thought these people were really going to run. Then we dig a little further into just the nuts and bolts. How do you raise money? How do you build a campaign? How do you hire people? Do you have a media training? We provide analytics support so that we have a data firm that we work with that says, here's what the number you need to win in this district. Here's what you need to probably raise. So depending on where people are along the trajectory, we kind of move them along. And so at some point we say, all right, let's invite an endorsement from this person, which is kind of our final step to say, okay, we're going to go through this endorsement with you. We dig deep into kind of where you are thinking about issues and values. Do you really represent our community? Does it make sense for us to endorse you? And then once my board approves it, then we do a number of other things for the candidate. We can give them financial support, which is very important. We plug them into donors. We plug them in with press. A lot of it is behind-the-scenes stuff that no one will ever see. And then we have a different side of the organization that is not what they call the coordinated side. The other side of the wall is the independent stuff, and that's where we can do political ads, things of that nature that's just not coordinated with the campaign. So again, all of these different things are sometimes necessary to win, and they're very complicated, but there's basically the full trajectory for you until the very end when we want to uh, congratulate them after their big win and then stay close with them. Wow. You really do the whole thing. We try. <laughs> it, <but laughs> this it really is really depends. comprehensive. I'm really impressed. <laughs> so tell us about the three most exciting Latino candidates in the midterms. Wow. That's a really, really hard question because we have so many incredible candidates. In 2017, we endorsed 10 candidates, which was a big year for us. This year, I anticipate we'll exceed 70 candidates. And that's because you're seeing this huge upswell of support and urgency from the community. We've got candidates all over the country, coast to coast, up and down the ballot, really incredible people like Michelle Lujan Grisham, who, if she's elected in New Mexico, will be the very first Latina Democratic governor in the country. Or just a little further south in Arizona, you have David Garcia, who'd be the first Latino governor out there, who's a real champ and a progressive in Texas. And that's just the, the non-federal stuff. On the federal side, you've got people like Annette Tadeo that are running in Florida. She'd be reelected, but she was the first Latina Democratic senator in that state legislature, which is hard to believe. So these are just a handful of some of these races, but these are all champions for our community and are on the cusp of making history. Are voters turning out more, Latino voters, are they turning out more because they see Latinos running? They are. So that's part of our theory of change. So 
if you have a great candidate who comes from the community, reflects the values of the community, and they have the tools they need, they will increase Latino turnout. And then you have this virtuous cycle where you're electing great people that really represent the community and increasing turnout, and it can grow. And so we're seeing that. So, um, for example, uh, with Sylvia Garcia, who ran in Houston for Congress, she increased turnout 221%. If you look at a recent primary that we just did in Florida, we had a candidate there. His name is Darren Soto, who was up for re-election uh, in a competitive primary. We spent significant resources in his district around Orlando focused on Puerto Ricans after the devastation uh, of Hurricane Maria and the, and the terrible federal response. It was important for us to retain him as the only Puerto Rican member of Congress from Florida. So we ran an independent expenditure in that race, and he garnered twice as many votes this year as in 2016, a presidential year. And he had as many votes total as all the other candidates combined in 2016. So it, it's been pretty profound to see great Latino candidates exploding Latino turnout. But it, it also is the case that if you don't have a, a great candidate or if you don't have the right messenger or if you don't have the right investment, Latino turnout will not go up. So that's the narrative you oftentimes hear about. There have been a lot of stories recently about Democrats being worried that Latinos are going to stay home on Election Day. Well, you should worry if you're not investing in the community. But if you do invest and you make the right choices, you'll explode turnout with really positive results of the sort I just described. What was the biggest takeaway in terms of Latino voters in the 2016 election? 80% of them turned out for Hillary. Well, 80% voted for her. We need to increase turnout substantially. Part of the problem is if you look at where Latinos are nationally, half of us live in states that are not battleground states, which means... Nobody's talking to them. Most Latino voters will just never even be contacted by a candidate or political party. I think 2016 kind of shook that up. Um, you're starting to see competitive races in states or in districts that were never competitive. So in that sense, it's very positive because our community is being engaged in a way that it hasn't before. I also think that the real silver lining to 16 is that Donald Trump can prove to be the greatest Latino political organizer of all time. If you look at California with Prop 187 two decades ago, and Pete Wilson, uh, who was the anti-immigrant governor at the time, it changed California forever because it woke Latinos up. They became engaged. It woke up other voters, people of color, immigrant voters, and it changed California. I mean, look at where that state is today compared to where it was then. Arizona is on a similar trajectory. It's now closer as a battleground state than Ohio, Iowa, North Carolina. And the way the table is set this year, if you look at the the balance of the Senate. Four of the most competitive U.S. Senate races in the country are Latino states, Texas, Florida, Arizona, Nevada. So in that sense, Latinos are poised to make the difference in these races. That will be an important building block to taking back the White House. Last but not least, what we have to understand about the map in 2020 is just these Midwest states that get a lot of attention. Ultimately, people said that's how this presidential election was decided. When you had fewer than 80,000 votes in Michigan and Wisconsin, fewer than fit in the stadium tipped the election, right? So we have to think about it that way. And in those states, we also have fast-growing Latino populations that haven't been engaged. So I intend, once we're through with the midterms um, and have had great success there, to really make sure that our candidates are talking to these voters. And even if we don't have a candidate in those states, the presidential candidates themselves in the very earliest days are engaging our communities so that we're not an afterthought. I really love your passion. You're 
going to really make a difference. And like you said, it's changing the way that our results come out. We have been waiting for this for a long time. We've heard, oh, Latinos are going to tip the scale, but then they say, oh, but Latinos didn't vote. But you're changing that. You're not going to allow that to continue to happen. Looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? I'm a new dad. I have a nine-month-old daughter. Thank you. I look to her and I just think of the future. And it has instilled in me this even greater urgency to make sure that we get it right, that she never feels the the same kind of sting of racism and pang of defeat that so many people felt uh, in 2016. And I want her to know that she's every bit of an American as, as anybody else in this country and has a place here and has the opportunities that she deserves and, and that I didn't have, which was the same reason my mom worked so hard so that my brother and I would have the chances that she didn't have. So that's what gives me great hope and optimism and excitement. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Latino victory strategy to invest in political power through elections instead of working to redress injustices against the community has paid off handsomely, especially in down-ballot races. There are many first-time Latino victories in states from Florida to Texas and from Arizona to Washington. I was most impressed by Silvia Garcia's success in increasing turnout by 221% in Houston. With more and more Latino candidates, we can anticipate electoral outcomes to reflect the demographic changes in our overall population. As with all elections and all voters, candidates need to invest in the communities that they seek to represent, understand their priorities, and convey the right message. It may not be so difficult. As it turns out, Latinos are just like the rest of us. They care about health care, a strong economy, good jobs, and education. With the help of Cristobal Alex and Latino Victory, Latino Power is here to stay. On the next episode of Future Hindsight, our guest is Max Feldman of the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU School of Law. The center works to reform, revitalize, and defend our country's systems of democracy and justice. These laws in my personal view, can often breed cynicism about the system and can lead people to think my vote doesn't matter or my vote won't be counted. Succumbing to that kind of cynicism is exactly what the sponsors of these laws want. And so as a baseline, just making sure you're active, you're registered to vote, your family and friends are registered, and just getting out there and making your voice heard is the number one thing you can do. Until next time, I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for listening to Future Hindsight. The executive producer and host of this program is Mila Atmos. The audio producer and music composer is Peter Fedak. The associate producer is Miriam Tsumbu. Find us online at futurehindsight.com and listen to us through your favorite streaming services.